This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. On Monday, our Zoomer squad addressed some of the worry and misinformation around the new coronavirus, which originated in China and has made its way to Canada, specifically Toronto. Our public health experts continue to offer reassurance that the risk of contracting this new coronavirus is still low. But what do we do in the meantime? To discuss the answers to that question, Libby Snymer was joined by Zoomer Magazine senior editor Peter Mugridge, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media. Obviously, as a layman, like all of us watching the news media, it was very confusing. I, obviously, China has an interest in uh, not, let's say, magnifying the problem. So you don't know whether the information coming out of there is accurate. How many cases are there? Is there adequate screening in place? Uh, so far, it seems that the authorities are on top of it here, but we don't really know. I remember the SARS uh, outbreak, and it took a couple of days before people figured out, you know, which which end was up, really, whether, whether how serious it was, how widespread it is. So I think we have to be very watchful and uh, hope that they know what they're doing. And are we, you know, heeding lessons from the SARS outbreak, from Ebola, from H1N1? You know, what I've heard from the minister so far is, you know, comments around trying to reassure Ontarians that uh, our health system is equipped, but is it? You know, do we have all the necessary protocols in place? Are they doing mandatory screening at hospitals? Are they, do they have, um, you know, screening in our hospitals and our care facilities and our workers prepared to deal with what could be a, a very serious threat? I find it interesting. I've talked to quite a number of infectious disease specialists since this first came up. And one of the things they keep saying is is that the, the risk here is still quite low. Yeah. And people seem to forget that 3,500 people die every year from the regular flu That's that right. we get every year where you have to convince people to go and get their flu shots. You know, uh, Ontario's chief medical officer said the risk remains low. Um, Canada's public health officer said we should not be overly concerned. Um, the World Health Organization still hasn't declared an emergency, even even in China. So I, I, I think um, there's a lot of misleading reports. There's a lot of anxiety out there. But it seems like the officials in this case are not uh, playing it up. Yeah. It's such a good point. There's a lot of hysteria around yes. the coronavirus, as there was with SARS, as there was with... We need to remember that the flu is so far is more deadly and and people often mistake the flu for your for a common cold and it isn't so i think that that's an important point but but i think what they should do in that case is we need a clear statement you know what is it how do you know if you're vulnerable 
what should you be looking for? What should you be doing if you see these signs? And I haven't seen such a statement. Well, it's reassuring, is, but I don't even know what, what I'm dealing with, yeah. frankly. Yeah, but the, the signs and the symptoms are very similar to yeah. the flu. And it's interesting, with the case of the man who was um, was in China, he is in the hospital, but his wife, who was in self-quarantine, when she was diagnosed, has a milder case. She's not in the hospital. And they are trying to contact the people who were beside them on the plane. I guess the two-meter radius is is the radius where it's a problem. So they're trying to get in touch with those the people. Mates, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but not even everyone on the plane. Just just the people in, in the, the immediate two, two vicinity. Meters, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you see, that's new to me. That I've read a lot of story, but I didn't hear this two meter thing yeah. till now. If I had like a a, oh. a cheat sheet that said, "Look, here's the five things you must know." Go forth now, <laughs> armed with this information. I, I think it's, evol- it's rapidly yeah. evolving, right? So, yeah, I mean, I guess at first is. they thought it was a three day incubation period. Now it's they think it's a ten day. So. Yeah. That's going to create more cases that that they didn't predict didn't down know, the road. Yeah. Well, if it's a ten day yeah. incubation, that's why the screening at the airport isn't necessarily very effective. Right. Also, the wearing of masks. The jury is out on whether that does any good at all. You see people wearing those ones where you you know those sanding masks. You know the construction masks. I mean that that's not going to stop. Well, I remember anything, with SARS know? though. I don't know if you remember, Libby. The city was like yeah. filled with yeah. people everywhere you went. Everybody was wearing a mask. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows whether it was just a feel good thing. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugridge, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, in conversation with Libby Snymer this past Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Developments and issues around the coronavirus were hot topics through the week on Fight Back, as the numbers out of China continued to jump significantly on a daily basis. We were told the risk of contracting this new illness in Canada remains very low. But despite the reassurance, what seems to be spreading like a pandemic is fear of the virus. More than 8,000 people were calling for school boards in York Region, in which the top reported ethnic origin is Chinese, to ban students whose family members had traveled to China within 17 days to come to school. Social media has also been full of posts with racist overtones. What are the facts? And is Canada doing enough? To drill down on both these questions, Libby Snymer welcomed on Tuesday Andre Picard, health reporter and columnist with The Globe and Mail, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network. So currently, our thoughts about the incubation period, based on most recent available evidence, is that the incubation period is somewhere between three and six days. And in hospitals and across the country, we're using a conservative estimate of up to 14 days. But that same kind of logic applies to the screening at airports, which means that patients can be recently having had travel in Wuhan or other parts of China and be entirely asymptomatic and therefore screen negative when they come to the airport, but still be incubating the virus as they come through and then as they make their way through Canada. So that same limitation regarding uh, airport screening still applies. And so still we're using the definitions of having symptoms plus the exposure history to uh, appropriately screen people there. So do you still agree that the airport screening is not very effective? I think for the most part, it's not very effective for a variety of reasons, including the incubation period, the sensitivity of the test, uh, of the temperature measurements, and the sensitivity of the questions we answer, language barriers. There's various reasons why it's not very effective. 
it may add a little bit um, to the to the overall management and the surveillance of the infection, but our main defense against this will be vigilance among the population and screening at healthcare uh, sites across the country. Andre Picard, what is your observation about um, the, the spreading of the fear? Things like airport screening, quarantine. The public wants us to do something because they're fearful, but that stuff doesn't really work. So it's uh, what we have to do is sort of try and patiently inform people this is how infectious diseases spread, uh, not to uh, get too worked up about it. The risk is still very low. Uh, You know, help people understand the difference between transmissibility and risk. So there's a lot of things, a lot of basic stuff, and it's a hard job for public health. But public health is fighting an uphill battle because new things do make us much more frightened. We tend to not put things into context, you know, there are much more uh, things that put us much more at risk in our daily lives this time of year, like the flu is a much bigger risk than, than coronavirus is, and we, we just lose that uh, sense of, of, I don't know, being reasonable when new things come along and the headlines are screaming about a deadly virus, etc. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean to be flip, but I bet a lot of the people who are calling for anybody with any connection to China to, to be quarantined, I bet a lot of them are people who uh, aren't vaccinating. Yeah, there probably is, I wouldn't uh, presume, but I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, irony in some of the comments. And there's a lot of, you know, I try to not, I don't think we can just dismiss people's fears. I think it's a human, um, natural human emotion, but we have to try and help people understand that stuff is not going to be helpful, uh, that a lot of these calls for things like quarantines, keeping kids out of school, uh, these are people who are xenophobes to start off with, and this is a handy excuse, uh, something to use to, to, to be bigots. Dr. Vaisman, what would you like to leave us with on this? I think I'd like to just let the public know that the health officials, the physicians, all of the various infection control uh, groups, we all sympathize with the public's concern about this. It's a perfectly natural reaction to have, but we just want to make sure that everyone's aware about the, the real the, the risk that's happening here. And as Mr. Picard mentioned, we, we don't know a lot of things about this virus, and we are trying to keep people uh, up to date as much as we can. And it's certainly uh, understandable why people would have these reactions. But we do want people to have to listen to what's being said and to try to follow closely without um, without going overboard in terms of reactions. And as you alluded to earlier in the, in the beginning of the conversation was the the side effect of this having on the Chinese Canadian community about people having these views and about discrimination. And this, of course, we know happened earlier in SARS. And we hope that this won't continue to happen here in Canada as a result of this uh, outbreak. So that's another important message that we should be framing uh, as we go forward. Okay. And Andre, what would you like to leave us with? I'd say very briefly, uh, be aware, be informed, but don't be fearful or or worried. Get on with life and uh, wash your hands. Andre Picard, health reporter and columnist with Globe and Mail, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network, their conversation with Libby on Tuesday. By Wednesday, the Trudeau Liberals were announcing they would bring home the Canadians in central China who want to come back. And on Thursday, members of the World Health Organization's expert committee declared the new coronavirus a global health emergency. The week was also notable for the support offered by our political leaders in standing in solidarity with Chinese Canadians. Join Libby Snymer for more on this show of support on the Zoomer Weekend Review tomorrow after the noon news.
You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Monday marked 75 years since the liberation of the notorious Auschwitz death camp, where 1.1 million people, the vast majority of them Jewish, were slaughtered by the Nazis. This anniversary is marked as the number of survivors is rapidly dwindling and there is a disturbing resurgence of anti-Semitism around the world. We were fortunate on Monday when two Holocaust survivors joined Fight Back to share their personal stories. Dr. Renata Krakauer and Nate Leipzinger, along with Michelle Schlesinger of B'nai Canada. Well, this is an opportunity, uh, Libby, to commemorate and remember, to honor uh, those victims of the Holocaust and the survivors, a genocide of huge proportions involving six million Jewish men, women, and children who were murdered uh, for no other reason other than that they happened to be Jewish. This sort of hatred is truly a, th- a threat to our democracy. This kind of hatred affects our our society and affects the underlying um, fabric of our society, I would say. Uh, Going to Nate Leipzinger, who is a survivor of Auschwitz. Can you tell me um, how you came to be at Auschwitz? From what happened? How were you taken by the Nazis? So we were in August 2nd, 1943. We we were forced into a railroad car, which ended our civilian life, our life as a family. We got off the car our family was destroyed. My mother and my sister were went one, one way. My father and I went the other way. And my father rescued me from a lineup that went directly to the gas chamber only minutes later. He approached a, a Nazi officer and told him that uh, uh, he has a son here who is uh, 17 years old, even so I was 15, and that I was an electrician, which was true. And he convinced the Nazi to uh, take me from one line to the other. Right at the beginning, your father knew that this lineup were people who were going to be immediately killed? He, I, I, whether he knew or not, he knew, he understood that being with the young people, which he was with, was be more advantageous than being with uh, old men and young boys. This was obviously a, a time of... Uh, uh, no, not no knowledge to me, but maybe knowledge to my parents. So how long were you in Auschwitz altogether? We were 12 weeks in Auschwitz. The limit, when they told us that when we got there, they told us you have 12 weeks, so four months maximum, to get out of Auschwitz or you get out to the chimney. There was a couple that uh, gave us a lecture after we were uh, tattooed and they were, we were, disinfected and our hair was removed and then we were given a lecture and they said and you this is, this is not a summer camp this is a concentration camp and if you don't behave you're going to join your family who are being now processed by gassing to death remember this was remember this was information that I received of at, at the age of 15 and how do you how do you process that? How mentally, how do you process that, that your family and your members of your immediate family are being gassed to death for nothing but the fact that they were born Jews? What is the core of your message to people on this anniversary of the liberation? The core message is that the, 
that the responsibility to remember and to fight anti-Semitism, bigotry, and racism is now going on to the to the on the shoulders of our children and our grandchildren and the general population because anti-Semitism is only a forerunner to destruction of millions of people. Remember that the Nazis killed six million Jews, but in the process of killing six million Jews, 30 million people lost their lives. So, you know, anti-Semitism is not only hurtful to us, but it is a, is a forerunner and a situation which must be prevented in order to save the world. And now I would like to bring in Dr. Renata Krakauer, also a Holocaust survivor. Well, first of all, I my connections are not with Auschwitz. Yes, I know. Second of all, I'm a Holocaust baby, so thank God I don't have memories of the Holocaust. But I was born at the time when there are one and a half million Jewish babies, of whom only a handful survived. So my mother used to call me her miracle baby. And that does bring back memories of my parents and what they went through and uh, the miraculous uh, events that managed to bring me here to this day when I'm still around and enjoying my life, you know. Where were you in Poland and, and how did you manage? How did your, how did your well, parents manage to keep you safe? I was born in a, in a town or a small city called Stanisławów. It's a city of about 75,000 population. About a third of them were Jews. And after the war, maybe 100 survivors. And those that survived were mostly those who were smart enough to escape to the Soviet Union. So I said to my parents, why didn't you go? Well, they did have a chance. My father was on the way to going. And then he realized my mother would be all alone with a baby. And he came back. He said, I can't leave you alone. Well, the Nazis came in in August of um, 41, and uh, they started implementing all the laws that you know about. We were all forced into a ghetto with six-foot walls, and the ghetto was systematically made smaller. We ended up in the ghetto. There were like three families to, uh, to an apartment. And my parents witnessed regular acts of brutality, especially among babies. And and people died of starvation, of typhus. And she realized after about a year in the ghetto, as it was being decimated, that things looked pretty grim. She um, found out from her cousin, who was a couple at the gate, you know, they were planning to uh, destroy the whole ghetto, so get that child out of here. So my mother sneaked out behind his back with me wrapped up in a comforter, and she ran. She managed to uh, find the neighbor's house where she stayed and got in touch with a, a maid from her brother's house who lived in a village nearby. And she took me to, that woman took me to her sister, was a very poor peasant woman. She was a widow with two little boys. And she kept me there for a year and a half, and I was like their little little daughter. They uh, very treated lucky. me very, they very have, well. They, they would have been in, in massive danger if it was found out that they uh, were... Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, people in the village probably knew I was Jewish, too. 
uh, but I was blonde and blue-eyed. And Dr. Krakauer, what do you think when you see the resurgence of anti-Semitism basically all around the world? Well, you know, it just makes me sick. I think I grew up in Canada. I lived in Montreal for the first few years when we, we came in 48 also, and then in Toronto. And, and I just was... Never, I, you know, I used to roll my eyes when my parents would, and luckily they told me the stories, but, you know, they were just stories. And then I started to see this stuff, and I think, you know, it could happen anywhere, anytime. And not like somebody like Nate mentioned, and it is happening to other minorities. It's uh, we Jews, like if it starts happening to Jews, it starts happening, it's happening to other people too, because it's, it's when people start to look at other human beings as not fully human. They are, they are animals, they are things. We don't have to recognize their humanity. And then terrible things start to happen. And anti-Semitism is part of that huge re, uh, refusal to look at the other as a fellow human. What do you hope happens to keep the memory alive? Well, I'm a, uh, an educator, so I fully uh, believe that one generation you know, has to educate the next. We can't just let things slip by. We have to educate and when they and when these the people start dying out who they are i think the next generation has to pick up the torch holocaust survivors dr renata krakauer and nate leipsinger along with michelle schlesinger of benay brith canada this is the best of fight back on zoomer radio i'm jane brown fight back with libby's nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones we've gone through the audio here are some of the best calls of the week ron in guelph phoned to say he thinks premier doug ford is living up to his promises and all ontarians need to buy in i remember when the ndp was in government in the early 90s, and it was a disaster for the uh, industrial side of the province. There were no strikes allowed, and a lot of companies left. I think the Doug Ford government is doing a good job. I just think that this isn't going to be something that's going to be solved overnight, and I'd hate to see us going back to the way it was. It's tough love. We've got to live up to it. Bob in Etobicoke called to say he doesn't think the next federal conservative leader needs to speak French. We want the best person that's qualified to go around with the rest of the world. Whether he speaks French or not doesn't really matter. We want somebody that, that can run a country and get along with everyone. We've got to pick the best that we can get with the best abilities, whether they speak French or not. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Simon in Toronto, who thinks differently and feels it's vital that the next federal conservative leader speaks French. If you're going to be running for the prime minister's office, you must speak both official languages, especially today with the movement that we're seeing in Alberta, 
with everything that's going on out west, I'm sorry, if you're going to run for the office, you better speak French. Listen, you either speak French or you don't. You must speak both official languages, especially, especially today. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackzoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.